I would encourage you to, to see these people and grab them after service. Um, tell them that they will sleep again. Continue to depend on the Lord, but there will be a moment when sleep will come again. Galatians chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Galatians chapter 4, verses 8 through 20. Um, we're on the heels of Paul using this very explicit and profound adoption language to describe the relationship that believers in Jesus Christ have with God their Father through the Son, Jesus, empowered by the Spirit. So throughout the past several weeks, as we've looked at this book of Galatians that Paul writes, we've entitled the series No Other Gospel because ultimately that is the main thing that Paul is seeking to address. There's this group of churches in this area called Galatia. It's in the Asia Minor region. And Paul is writing to them to help them remember the truth that has been preached to them because ultimately he has heard that they are not living according to the gospel that's been preached. So much so that they've been affected, this church, by this group called the Judaizers. And to catch everybody up to speed, here's the point of what Paul's doing in Galatians. There's a group of people who've come into these churches and said, if you really want to have a relationship with God, if you really want righteousness, if you really want peace, if you really want to experience what it means to have a true relationship with God, then you must keep the entire Mosaic law. You must keep the Old Testament law, the Old Covenant, in order to experience the benefits of the New Covenant. You cannot just trust in Christ alone. And Paul comes at the Galatians hard. He's angry. He's upset. He's frustrated. He's disappointed. Why? Because they're failing to believe in the gospel. You're going to see today as we walk through this text that Paul is really challenged in his relationship with these people, so much so that he's not only afraid of what they're doing and where they're going, it's almost as if he doesn't even know who they are. That's the gravity of the ways in which they failed to believe the gospel and some of the decisions that they're making. This happens because people are wanderers. You and me, by nature, are wanderers. We leave. We run away. Paul is fighting against that to say there's hope, there's life, there's joy abundant in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's read this passage together. Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 8, says this. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather... To be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I'm present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth 
until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. This is the word of the Lord to which we say together. Thanks be to God. Look at the end of verse 11. You see this language where Paul says he's afraid. Look at the end of verse 20. You see this language where Paul says that he is perplexed. That there's genuine concern about the life that is to come for these believers that he's had relationship with. Because he's detailed some of that story and we'll get into it. But there's also this overarching reality for Paul that in so many ways the people that he sees are not the people that he knows. He is perplexed. He's confused. These are grave statements and the really challenging assertions that Paul makes. But it points out the reality that we are people that wander. That we're people that do things that are out of step with the character that, that we have and out of step with the way that we've been taught to live. Spiritually, I think we experience this in, in what I would consider one of the greatest hymns, which has come now out of every blessing. There's this line in there, this deep line in there, and while it's so theologically rich and doctrinally pure in a billion ways, one of my favorite things is the humanity that's expressed in a distinct line in this hymn that says, prone to wander, Lord, I what? Feel it. I like actually feel it. I feel the propensity. I feel the desire. I feel the notion in myself to leave the God that I love. To run away from that which pursues me, to that which loves me, when that, from that which cares for me. We're, just, we're people that wander. Look at the journey that God's people have taken. And even as Paul has walked this group of people in Galatia through the history of lineage of God's people back to Abraham, I want you to think back to Exodus, specifically in chapter 16, when you see God's people who have been freed out of slavery in Egypt... They're freed out of slavery, and one of the first things that they emote, one of the first things that they say is this. They begin this wilderness journey, and it starts in this way. I wish we died in Egypt. They were just saved from there. And they're like, you know, I wish we just died there. I don't want to walk into this unknown. You know, it's wild. At the end of the 40 years, look into Numbers chapter 14, specifically verses 2 through 4, and you're going to see this. They say the same thing again. At the end of that wilderness journey, they say that we would have died in Egypt or may we just return to Egypt to run back to something that is unhealthy, to run back to old evil desires or bad places. I want you to think about little things in life that don't know where they're going. Like, has anybody ever had a pet turtle? It's not a great pet. I wouldn't advocate for it. It doesn't do, Mia loves turtles. But I did, look, it just doesn't do a lot, right? It's just not doing a lot of stuff. But here was the thing about my, the turtle I had as a kid. He lived a very short time, and for that, I'm sorry. Um, this turtle, you'd set him out in a direction to go, right? But ultimately, they'd end up going this direction, and then something might go wrong or whatever, and you're like, you know what, I'm going to turn him around. So you'd bend down, and you'd like pick up the turtle, and you'd turn it around. It was good practice for parenting, because when you ha begin to have little children that walk, like when these things, and Paris the thought that it would come soon, because it won't. It'll be forever before you get there. It won't be like in the blink of an eye or anything. But these children that we, that we commissioned or commissioned their parents this morning, these beautiful children will start toddling and they'll start walking, and they will head for impending doom. 
danger will be a magnet for them. And they will walk in that direction. As a parent, what will you do? You will pick them up, and you'll turn them the other direction, and you'll set them down to go the safe way. And then two seconds later, they're right back. They're wandering in the direction they shouldn't go, right? And that's funny. It's cute, right? That's like pet stuff, kid stuff. No, this is adult stuff. Like grown-ups do this in crazy ways. And I think this is nowhere more pictured in our cultural society. If we could take something that we would all maybe have a familiarity with, see in the world, and see a picture of this, no better place than the critically acclaimed, fan-lauded, Spielberg-directed 1993 film Jurassic Park. I want you to think about this. Jurassic Park. You know, super rich, billionaire, financier, private island. They, they find fossilized what? Dino DNA, right? Like, we, we've seen this film. Is it a good idea to bring dinosaurs up from the dead? Don't think so. They did it anyway, okay? Here's the thing. I, I, it's not really a spoiler alert. Maybe some of you, like, real little folks haven't seen it. But it came out in 1993, so I'm not ruining anything. It ends really poorly. You know, because dinosaurs are everywhere. They're everywhere. And so it takes a dinosaur killing other dinosaurs, the T-Rex killing the Velociraptors to get people, everybody except Newman from Seinfeld, off the island in a helicopter and saved, right? You know what the craziest thought in the world is? This is the wildest thing. We're going to go back to the island. That's the idea. There is a Jurassic Park 2, The Lost World. And while that makes sense to Spielberg and the cinematography world, think about this. In human reality, we should not go back to where the dinosaurs are. It doesn't make any sense. And yet, they choose to do it. So much so that there's a Jurassic Park 3. And then they build taller fences and it keeps going and going, right? But this is the reality we're like people that go back to the island. We run to things that we've known before. We run to places that are not good, that are not healthy, that are not spots where we need to be. And Paul is telling the Galatian church that this is exactly where they are. That they're turning back to things that don't provide life. That don't Give them the joy and the beauty of having a relationship with God and Jesus. But the way Paul does it is really, really unique. Because in an aggressive way, Paul is going to compare and draw these Galatians into the reality in this text that them trying to fulfill the law in these moralistic ways, living in a Judaic framework, living as if the law will produce righteousness is just as awful as the pagan lifestyle they came from. It's just as bad. Why? Because there's no gospel there. Look into verse 8 and look at what you see. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God. So what is Paul talking about? Well, this group of people, the area that, that Paul is writing to, this is, a, this is a Gentile area, specifically one characterized by a lot of pagan worship. And that pagan worship would look like this. There, there were notions where people would worship 
uh, a God of the sun uh, or, or God of rain or things like this, largely because they lived in an agrarian society. They lived in a place where they farmed for food, and that determined their wealth, their life, their income, all of those types of things. But they also, as pagans, were worshiping things like trees. They were worshiping things like nature, fire, wind, water. It sounds like Captain Planet, but truly, this is what they were worshiping. They were worshiping what Paul calls the elemental things, and he chooses these words by nature are not gods. Here's the reality. In the pagan world, we see people worship things that are mere things. Created by God, but they are not God. Now to us, in a room like this, we can say, and I think we can all assent to this, that it would be foolish to worship a tree. Can everybody get on board with that? I think this is a pretty good litmus test for us as a church. Are we all in a good spot with that? All right. That, that, that should not be a thing. That we should not worship things that are created. Instead, we should worship the creator of all. The God of heaven and earth. Paul is saying that when you, before you knew Christ, before you heard the good news of Jesus, you were enslaved to this stuff. You were enslaved to this way of living. And then in verse 9, he says, Now... That you've come to know God. So he's talking about the place and the time in which they've come to trust in Christ. And then he uses this phrase, which is rather unique. He says, now that you've come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? So to know God and to be known by God, in one sense, is two sides of the same coin. But Paul is emphatically using this phrase, rather to be known by to help them understand the reality and the order of the way that life works in relationship with God. That it is not, I started knowing God in the midst of my sin. No, God has known me through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God has enabled relationship. God is the one who comes to us. Hear this, every religion in the world, every other thing will tell you, do this and you get God. Or do this and you get righteousness. Or do this and you get peace. Do this and you'll get the life that you want. And you know what the gospel says? You can't get here, so I'm coming to you. God comes to us in Jesus Christ. John the Apostle would write it in this way. In 1 John chapter 4, he would say it this way in verse 10. He would describe love fully and completely and say that it's this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. The action begins with God's work toward us, not us moving toward God. He would say it in a different way in 1 John chapter 4 verse 19. Do we love first? No. We love because he first loved us. This is what Paul is saying when he uses this phrase to be known, not just to know God, to be known by God, means that your identity comes from the fact that God knows you. That God has known you in Christ Jesus. This is the reality but the people in Galatia are struggling because they are turning back to weak and worthless elementary principles. But here's the catch. They're doing it in a different way this time. 
They're not walking toward paganism. In fact, they're actually walking toward legalism. They have hook, line, and sinker bought this lie that in order to have a relationship with God, you have to keep the whole entire old covenant. You got to keep the Mosaic law. You got to do the right things. There's a morality scale, and you've got to live up to it. <coughs> I want to highlight from a theologian named G.K. Barrett how profound what Paul is doing here really, really is. He says that this moment right here as, is an extraordinary statement as is to be found anywhere in Paul's letters. So think about everything that Paul's written. Everything. Romans and forward, so much of the entirety of the New Testament composed by this apostle. And he says that what he's saying right here is as wild as any. Why? Because here in Galatians, he virtually equates Judaism with heathenism. To go forward into Judaism is to go backwards into heathenism. Now think about this. We all are people that sit in a church today. And by nature... Society would tell us that as a result, we're good people. The darkest reality is that you also believe that yourself on some level, and so do I. That we're in the good place. That we're in the spot where good people go. That there are people that are out there doing horrible things, and it's caused them to not be here this morning. They're heathens, right? We might even joke about it casually, say that there are people that are, that are pagan. They live for themselves. They live for the world. And I know that you and I, like, we don't talk on the day-to-day in the 21st century in Shelby County, Alabama, as, as in calling people pagans. I understand that. But the reality and, and the connection you need to see is there are people that live for themselves in the world. How about that? That, that something is an idol to them. They're worshiping something. And we think the good folks are here and the bad folks are out there. Quite often, we're tempted to think, you and I, you and me, we're tempted to think that, that we live in a way that, that is righteous. We're doing moral things. And quite often, you and I, who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, believers, people that have experienced everything, that are indwelled by the Holy Spirit, that have been bought, that have been purchased, that have been made new, We think that keeping the law, living a moral life, is either what saves us or keeps us saved. Paul's saying, you live like that, you're a heathen. You're a heathen. Why does he say that? Why why is that? He's saying that can't produce what you want just like that can't in a different kind of way. That pleasure, that heathenistic lifestyle that you condemn out there as your former past, it doesn't bring life and you know that. But guess what? People of Galatia, those who are a part of these churches, this moralistic life where you think if I do all the right stuff that God will love me or God will love me more, That's a lie too. And because he cares about them, because he loves them, he says, don't believe this. Don't do this. 
He's equating the law. And hear this very clearly. If used in a utilitarian way, if used in a way to produce righteousness, the law is weak and worthless. And it's an elementary principle in the way that they're attempting to use it. The law is meant to point us to the goodness of God, his continued faithfulness to his people across all ages. And the promise of the one who would come. Well, guess what? That one has come in Christ Jesus. And now the Galatian church gets to experience life in him. They don't have to do all this stuff to get right with God. Doing that, as Paul has stated clearly, obviously beforehand, he says, that nullifies the work of the cross. What did Jesus die for? So what does that mean for us? What does that mean for people like you and me? It means this. We live from love, not for it. What do I mean by that? You saw these families this morning hold these children. And I can unequivocally state that there is nothing that that child needs to do for that parent to love them. No morality, no no good works, no achievement, no accomplishment. And the hope is that raising those children in love, as they experience that love, their life will be a response to the love they've been given. Do you know what Paul is telling the church in Galatia? And by proxy, what the Holy Spirit of the living God that indwells us is trying to tell us today through this passage is this. Do not think that the way you live is how you get love. That is not how this works. That is a weak principle, and that sounds like the world. It sounds like an elemental, basic thing that this broken, sinful world has told you and I forever. Don't do those things in hopes that you get love. Instead, rest in the fact that while you were a sinner, Christ died for you. That's the love. That's the source. Man, I want to mature. I want to grow in my faith. I want to, like, we talk about the gospel a lot. Are we ever going to get beyond this? No. We will not, because there is no place from which to go. We can't go further than that. And Paul's saying, don't you understand? This is everything. You've been loved fully. Don't be deceived by these people who are telling you that life is found in heathenism or that life is found in this legalistic morality where you try to earn your own salvation. It's in neither place. It is only found... In the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul says these things because he says, look, I'm afraid I labored over you in vain. He's fearful. Why? Look at verses 12 through 20. And in a brief, very quick way, we'll kind of walk through Paul's history with the Galatian church. If you look back into Acts, specifically chapter 15 and onward, you're going to get some pictures of missionary journeys and some history relative to Paul's time in Galatia. What we don't know historically is actually what's going on in this moment where he describes his bodily ailment, and the things that he experienced when he was with them. But here's kind of the crux of what this text says. Paul comes to them, and what God has used to cause him to come to these churches is something that's going on with him in a bodily way. There's something that is happening to him. Now, why is that important for Paul to say that to them? Well, it's because it drew him there to preach the gospel, but their their reaction was really important to him. He says in verse 14 that they didn't scorn or despise him. 
but instead they received him as an angel of God. What does all that stuff mean? So, so Paul has got something wrong with him, and God's used that to send him to Galatia to go preach the gospel to these people. But what does it mean? Like, why would they treat him poorly if he had something? Like, he's, he's sick, right? It's like, why are they going to treat him poorly? And what's all this stuff about them treating him like he's an angel? Here's the thing. In this time, in antiquity, and in this Greco-Roman world, if someone was sick, it was often seen as a picture of divine retribution. And here's what that means. That ultimately, if someone was sick, they were cursed. They weren't living clean. They did something wrong, and so God is punishing them. Now, that is theologically inaccurate. They live in a broken world affected by the tainting of sin. That's, that's just what is happening. But in this day and age, in this time, people, if someone came as a messenger or someone came as an emissary from a government or to tell something important, they would not in any way, shape, or form receive people that were, they had something wrong with them. But Paul's saying, you didn't scorn me, you didn't despise me. In fact, you received me as an angel of the Lord. What does he mean by that? The idea is this, that angels were those who produced divine proclamations from God. So Paul's saying, you used to, you, when I first met you, you received me, even in my broken state, as one who gave you this divine, life-changing, transformative good news of Jesus. But now, as you continue to read, Paul says this. It's almost as if you're treating me like I'm an enemy. That I'm against you by telling you these truths. That I'm reminding you of what I preached in the very beginning, the gospel you believed, and now you're treating me. You're living in such a way. I've heard that the life that you have is such that you don't even look like that person anymore, so much so that I'm an enemy. And then in verse 17, he describes what these Judaizers, these people that are attempting to make all these Christians in Galatia follow the old covenant, follow the the days, the seasons, the months, all this stuff. He says, there's a reason to do things in good purpose, but they're just using you. They're using you for their purpose, and it's not good. But my purpose is good in writing to you to tell you now, not just when I'm with you, but that I'm broken. I'm hurting. I'm in anguish, so much so that he likens it to the pains of childbirth. Look, this is fresh. We don't want to go back there, right? But the reality is, Paul is saying it's as if Christ has not even been formed in you. It's like it's almost as if you're living in such a way that you don't believe the gospel. So much so that look at that last line that he says he's perplexed. It's as if he looks at them and he sees someone he doesn't know. It's as if he sees someone that is not believed. This is why week after week, our goal is is to to continue to espouse what we believe God has called us to as the vision of our church, is that we would become gospel people. And that means that we're people who believe, who trust in, who rest in the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done in his life, in his death, in his resurrection for us as everything. This is why, quite frankly, sometimes people really struggle with some of the sermon application points. Because it's like, what do I do today? I'm going to tell you what Paul would tell you to do today. And you're going to think this is wild, like you've never heard it before. Believe in the gospel. 
Rest in the finished work of what Christ has done for you. It is not your morality that makes you who you are. It is not the things that you do that cause you to have a relationship with God. You know why? Because Jesus sought you when you were a stranger. Wandering from the fold of God. That's how he comes to us. He comes after us. He pursues us. That is the joy this morning. You look at this text and, and Paul's concerned. He's worried. I, I like, in some ways I hesitate to say this, but I can, I can say this as a pastor that God has called here. I fear for us. I worry for us that we forget the gospel. And when I say that, I need you to hear me and know that I love you. But I'm talking about individually you and your family. Not just in like a general way that the pastor's saying that to everybody. But a lot of you know that I know you. And my fear is that we would run away from the good news of Jesus and that we would pursue the life that looks good. We make enough. We do enough. We're kind enough. Everybody's good. Nobody gets in trouble. That's not the good life. It's not a good life for you. It's not a good life for me. Not if we make that the goal of life. No. I want my daughters to, to have good manners. I want my kids to be sweet. I want them to live beautiful little lives of love. I want them to do it from the life that they've been given in Christ, not because they're trying to earn it. And if we are people that could grasp this and don't run away from this. And you need to hear me. I'm not talking about being here more. I'm not talking about doing more stuff. I'm not saying get in three Bible studies and lead a devotion at work with your team every morning. If you lead a group of people at work. And I'm not saying you got to pray with the lady at Starbucks. That is not what I'm saying. What I am saying is this. Believe the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. Rest in the finished work of what Christ has done for you. And let all of your life flow from that. Every single bit of it. Every moment. From the way that you communicate with your spouse. To the way that you parent your new child. To the way that you interact with people everywhere. How can you get to that place? Here's how. Remember that you're known by God. It's not just that you know God and you know his name, but he knows yours. So God forgive us. God have mercy on us when we worship things that are little things. Tiny stuff, stuff that doesn't matter. That we give our life to or we think I'm going to find identity in this. We have the opportunity to experience something incredible. Even this morning. It is, it is 11.52 on a Sunday. It is just any other day. Unless you're an Alabama fan, I guess. Um, oh, come on. 
It's just another day, right? It's just another day. But here's, y'all the Alabama fans know I love you. But here's the reality. It's just another day. But, but it's also not. It's a day where I can believe the gospel. It's a day where in a deeper way I can say that, that all of life is this, that God knows my name. I'm free. I'm saved. I'm redeemed. I'm loved. And I'm going to rest in what he's done for me. We get that opportunity this morning. And you know what that means? That means I don't have to be afraid. I don't have to fear. I don't have to worry about my life being defined by my next paycheck, by the next hard conversation, by the next thing that's going to cause grief, genuine grief. That instead, all of life is wrapped up in this. God has known me. Thanks be to God that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. If you will, bow your heads with me and let's take this opportunity to ultimately just thank the Lord that he knows us. Heavenly Father, we are prone to wander and Lord, we feel it. We know that we want to run away from you, that we want to turn our eyes to things that don't satisfy you, that we want to listen to voices that are lies and that are not truth. God, we want to Father, quite frankly, we want to run because we struggle to believe. So, God, this morning, I believe that this would be our confession as our church. Father, we believe, but help our unbelief. Cause us to rest in what you have done for us in Jesus. And let hope spring eternal from that. That, Father, we could not come to you. But yet you came to us, actively, passionately adopted us. You sent your son Jesus for us. Didn't just allow it to happen. Father, it was your desire to redeem us. Father, help us to believe that this morning as we continue to worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.